0: This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lehmiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Earlier this year, I taught study abroad courses on sex and culture in both Amsterdam and Berlin. I've taught the Amsterdam course several times, but this was my first time teaching in Berlin and it was fantastic. As part of that trip, we took a three-hour guided tour on the history of sex in Berlin, and I learned so much. I wanted to share some of the fascinating things we learned with you, so I figured that I would invite our very knowledgeable tour guide onto the show to give us the highlight reel. Some of the things we're going to chat about today include the roots of Berlin's sexual liberation, which trace back more than a century, It may surprise you to learn that there were actually hundreds of gay and lesbian bars in Berlin as early as the 1920s. We'll trace the ebb and flow of Berlin's sexual culture over time, but we'll also discuss the history of sex research and therapy in Germany, which is equally fascinating. In fact, the first gender affirmation surgery in the modern world was performed in Berlin in the 1930s. Also, years before Alfred Kinsey came along, Berlin housed the world's first institute for sex research, which was ultimately sacked and burned by the Nazis, resulting in a tremendous loss for sex science. My guest today is Jeff Mannis, a social scientist, speaker, tour guide, sex educator, and freelance writer living in Berlin, Germany. Since 2018, he has been running his critically acclaimed guided tour, Berlin's History of Sex in Augmented Reality. This year, he launched his additional guided tours on the story of Berlin's clubs and Berlin's queer and trans history. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Are you passionate about building a career in sexuality? Look no further than the Sexual Health Alliance. With Shaw, you'll connect with world-class experts and join an engaged community of sexuality professionals from all around the world. Whether you're just beginning your journey or are in the process of building advanced skills, Shaw's comprehensive certifications, engaging events, and self-paced online training will move you beyond the basics and set you up to be a rising star in the field. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com and start building the sexuality career of your dreams today. In today's increasingly digital world, it's more important than ever to understand the intersection between sex and technology, and also to preserve our rights and privacy. For a deep dive into these issues and more, attend this year's Securing Sexuality Conference, which will be held October 19th and 20th in Detroit, Michigan. This event will bring together hundreds of sex therapists, IT security professionals, medical providers, researchers, and advocates. Securing Sexuality is the premier conference for people who are passionate about promoting sex-positive, science-based, and secure interpersonal relationships. Attendees will come away with a deeper understanding of and appreciation for the challenges and solutions to building healthy relationships against the backdrop of emerging technologies, while also cultivating a meaningful global community of colleagues. Continuing education credits are available for qualified professionals Check the show notes for the link or purchase your pass to the Securing Sexuality conference today at securingsexuality.com. That's securingsexuality.com. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: So when I taught my study abroad course in Berlin earlier this year, it was the first time I'd ever taught a class in that city. So I was thrilled to discover that you run several tours relating to sexual history and culture because it seemed like a perfect fit for my course and actually made my job a lot easier because we could talk (laughs) to an expert who really knows the stuff. So the first tour that we did with you was on sexual history, and you've been running this tour for the last five years. So how did you get into doing this in the first place?
1: I think I was I was always fascinated by sexuality. I think I wanted to start studying sexuality when I was already sixteen or seventeen years old, and then I suddenly discovered Berlin. <laughs> I would say, and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's sometimes unofficially referred to as the the most sexual city in the world um at least depending on from what angle you got it from and it is true that berlin really has a vibrant uh, sexual life kinky life like the big kinky queer sexual communities living here also clubs where you can really study sexuality in all its different kinds of forms so i don't know it has always fascinated me to understand why people do have the sexuality that they do
0: yeah and if you're going to be running like tours about sexuality-related issues, Berlin is the perfect place to do it because there are just endless things to talk about. It's a fascinating city and that's why I opted to teach one of my study abroad courses there this year. Previously, i had taught those courses only in Amsterdam, and I'm starting to expand and teach them in other cities and countries around the world, and Berlin just seemed like the next most logical stop. So I'm really excited to dive into the sexual history of Berlin with you. Now, the city is known, as you just mentioned, for being kinky and queer and sex positive, but those aren't new things. In fact, one of the things that you talked about on the tour was how the 1920s perhaps the most sexually thrilling era in Berlin, which I think might be surprising to a lot of folks. Because when people think about the 1920s, they probably think of like a more restrained and conservative Downton Abbey kind of era, you know. But at least in Berlin, that wasn't the case. So tell us a little bit about how Berlin's modern reputation for sexual liberation can be traced back to the roaring 20s.
1: I mean, there are many reasons why Berlin became so sexual in the 1920s. There was, of course, the first democracy that Germany ever had, the Weimar Republic, that uh, was installed in 1919, that already meant uh, a little bit of liberation. Also, Berlin was a city of women, at least in the beginning of the 1920s, because so many men had died in the First World War. And so women were participating much more in public life, which concluded a little bit in more women's liberation compared to times before, um, also with the right for women to vote in the Weimar Republic, and that women's liberation also contributed to the sexual liberation then berlin was a very big city in the 1920s there were four million people living in berlin back then that's even more than today Um, it was really its peak in the 1920s before the nazis seized power and that also contributed a little bit to nightlife to flourish and but also sexual life and so yeah berlin was really in the 1920s already a A very sexual city. Europe had always a little bit looked down on Germany for being quite sexual already before the 1920s. But then really in the 1920s, we had a huge explosion of sexual liberty, also of poverty and misery. It wasn't all very nice and wonderful, but but it was uh, really, compared to times before, a big step forward in sexual liberation.
0: And so you had things like sex work and sex clubs and fetish and... Things happening. Tell us just a little bit more about kind of like what the scene looked like.
1: Yeah. For example, you had, of course, you had about to 120,000 women and 35,000 men that were doing sex work in Berlin in the 1920s and also offering an huge amount of different fetishes and, and partly very specific fetishes. For example, you had the so-called stone horse um, which were uh, women that were considered ugly that had for example were lacking a limb or that had a strong skin rash for men for example had the kink of really having sex with a woman with a strong skin rash um, so very specific fetishes that you also had in, in that area which I found very very fascinating. But then also for example when it comes to queer life you had um, estimations go up to 85 lesbian bars and clubs and other locations for for lesbian women in the 1920s, which is just incredible because when we compare to today, we just have one in Berlin, one single one in, in Berlin. Then uh, you had up to 120 bars and clubs for gay and bisexual men. Um, you had the world's first organization for sex workers rights was founded in Berlin in 1919. And of course, you had the Institute of Sexual Science, the world's first Institute of Sexual Science of Locality in Berlin. And Berlin really was at the time the center for sexual science and sexology. The only center, actually, for sexual science and sexology, because it was just this one institute in the world.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, because that was actually going to be my next question. Because a century ago, when Berlin was burgeoning with this sexual liberation, it was also a hotspot for sex research and sex science, and while we often talk about or hear about Alfred Kinsey as kicking off the scientific study of sexuality in the 1940s and 50s, there was this guy by the name of Magnus Hirschfeld in Berlin who was already at the forefront of this, and I think a lot of people don't know about him or his contributions to the field, so give us the highlight reel of Hirschfeld, you know, why was he an important figure in the history
1: of sex? Hirschfeld was basically the founder of modern sexual science. Hirschfeld brought together everything that he could find in different academic uh, directions, from medicine to law to uh, social sciences, etc. Anything that he could find that has remotely to do with sexuality, brought together and created this huge archive. And by that, he basically founded modern sexual science. Because then in 1919, he also opened the world's first institute of sexual science, which was really... Like, it can't be overstated how important that institute was and how internationally influential Hirschfeld and his institute were. For example, uh, the Institute saw some of the world's first gender affirmation surgeries for trans people. Hirschfeld uh, was one of the inventors of modern sexual therapy, modern couple counselling, of artificial insemination. He invented two precursors to Viagra. The Institute was a place also where people could go to to get educated about sexuality. It was connected to the world's first organisation for queer rights, the Scientific Committee, which was also located at the Institute. There were international conferences happening at the Institute where people from all over the world came to Berlin to go to that Institute. Some countries even changed their laws depending on uh, what was taught at the Institute about sexuality. So it was just generally very, very world-renowned and famous and influential internationally.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's something I must admit, I myself honestly did not know a lot about, you know, because most of... My training in this area, reading in this area has been based on You know, the history of sex research as it happened in the United States, and, you know, we know a lot about Freud, you know, because Freud was that very central figure in all things related to sex, but there wasn't a lot of mention of Hirschfeld and some of these other folks, and so I was really grateful to go on this tour and really kind of get that deep dive into who he was, what this institute was about, and how that shaped so many things that we think of and know today when it comes to human sexuality, and including something like gender affirmation surgery. I think a lot of people tend to think of that as being a more recent phenomenon, but it was actually taking place in the 1930s in Germany. So, you know, there's a long history here that I think makes it all the more important for tours like yours to exist to help people really understand that history and context.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a reason for why we have forgotten about this, why we have forgotten about Hirschfeld, and that's, of course, the Nazis. So when the Nazis seized power in 1933, the Institute was one of the very first places they attacked, because um, not only was Hirschfeld gay, but most of all, he was Jewish. And Hirschfeld was, uh, Hirschfeld with his theories around, for example, he coined this term sexual intermediaries, which you can see as an early scientific theory about gender diversity. And these theories were always, like the Nazis were always very much against Hirschfeld and his theories of course they we're not using the language grooming but the propaganda that they were doing is kind of sometimes reminiscent of the propaganda that we have today sometimes against queer people of saying that they are grooming kids like the Nazis were doing something very similar against Hirschfeld Um so in the 1933 when they then seized power the Institute was also one of the very first places they attacked they destroyed the Institute from the inside they, they destroyed all the books they poured ink over the books and papers they brought everything out of the Institute and they were burning it in the Nazi book burnings we all know about the Nazi book burnings but we many people don't know that a big part of the books that were burned there actually came from the world's first institute of sexual science and after that a lot of it was just forgotten and destroyed. It was just still a very, very young movement. As I said, the only center for sexual science. And when you destroy all of that, there's nothing left for the world anymore and you have to completely rebuild it up again. So the reason why we don't know about it today is really basically because the Nazis had just destroyed everything. And it was not only a cut for Berlin, not only a cut for for Germany, but really for the entire world when it comes to this advancement of sexual science.
0: Yeah, it's so incredible and sad to think about the loss of knowledge, you know, when you would have an entire institute like that burned, because obviously this took place in an era before we had computers and backups and all these other sorts of things, you know. So there would just be that one text that was written, and once it's gone, it's gone. So there are so many things that could have informed us in studying sex that were just lost because of that. And I know that one of the things that we do on your tour is we stop and visit a memorial to where those books were burned. And so it's nice that there is at least some recognition of that, but outside of Berlin, outside of Germany, a lot of people just don't know about Hirschfeld. And yeah, it's in large part just because a lot of that information was simply destroyed and there's no way to recover it.
1: Yeah, I do feel though that uh, there's a lot of a lot of work being done in recent years to remember Hirschfeld again. Like when I first read about Hirschfeld when I was 16 or 17, there was nobody in my environment who knew his name. And now I feel that like Berlin is also doing a lot to remember him. They named the riverbank after him. The riverbank is like the opposite of where the institute was standing. There's a memorial dedicated to the world's first queer emancipation movement that also talks about Magnus Hirschfeld. The city of Berlin wants to officially have a Hirschfeld day they want to make his birthday the Hirschfeld day in Berlin to also remember that past again so there's a lot of work now in recent years being done again to remember um, that part of sexual science history and also of career history um, and I'm I'm really excited to see that
0: yeah and that's one of the reasons I find it fascinating every time I travel to Berlin or anywhere else in Germany is that it's a culture that really tries to respect and honor its history both the positive and negative sides of it and it stands apart from a lot of other parts of the world where they often engage in a lot of revisionist history where they don't want to acknowledge or talk about certain things and so it's something that's inescapable in Berlin you know just as you're walking down the streets you see So many ruins, things that are left over from World War II, and you know all of these constant reminders and memorials to that history. So it's just it's an interesting place to visit for that reason alone. But I want to talk a little bit more about the Nazis and when they came to power. So you know, as you mentioned, they sacked the Hirschfeld Institute, and you know we know lots of things that happened there. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how when the Nazis rose to power, that affected the sexual liberation movement that was happening. You know, we just talked about the Roaring Twenties and how there were all these lesbian bars and gay bars and, you know, the fetish and kink scene. So what happened to all of that once the Nazis came to power?
1: It was literally everything destroyed. Like many clubs already, um, like, as I said, there were at least 120 gay bars, of course, not at the same time between 1919 and 1933, but still like the 1920s saw 120 gay bars and 85 lesbian bars. There was, for example, also the club El Dorado, which was frequented by a lot of people that today would identify as trans. The uh, identity category as trans didn't exist at the time yet as we use it today. Back then you had the term transvestite, which was more an umbrella term for trans, drag, non-binary, etc and the Eldorado was for example a club where a lot of those transvestites would then go to we one of the most famous clubs in the world back then and all of that was was gone already in 1932 so a year before the Nazis seized power because there was a new police director in Berlin who wanted to close down all these clubs of, of sexual liberty and as soon as the Nazis then seized power in 1933 of course everything was was done for good and a lot of people sometimes think oh then 1945 happened and then liberation was again and then like And then it all went back to where it was before, but it it didn't. It just didn't. It took a long time to get back to where we were in the 1920s again because especially West Germany in the 1950s and 1960s continued a very, very patriarchal idea of family, of also what a woman has to be. And the idea in the 1950s and 60s was that a woman has to be a housewife, has to take care of the kids, the household, and be available for the husband at all times. And it's very, very different from how the, the idea of a woman in the 1920s. And still for more than two decades after the end of the Nazi era, we still had this very patriarchal idea in, in West Germany, at least in GDR, it was a little bit different, but in West Germany, at least, that And that really shows that like, when you have such a strong cut like like the Nazi era, things can really be lost for a long time when something like this happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the Nazis and Hitler, one thing that you talked about on the tour was Hitler's kind of complicated relationship with homosexuality. And I just wanted to briefly touch on that. So what can you tell us
1: about that? So um, Hitler had a very good friend, um, Ernst Röhm. Ernst Röhm was a uh, um, leader of the paramilitary Nazi organization Sturmabteilung, or SA in short, and pretty openly gay. And... Uh, well, first of all, we have to understand why there were gay Nazis also in the beginning, because we just talked about Magnus Hirschfeld and his uh, scientific uh, humanitarian committee, the world's first queer rights organization. That organization was politically more left leaning. Um, it was the first one, but it wasn't later in the 1920s. It was not the only one. There were also other movements. And one of those movements was a little bit, oh, well, not a little bit, but actually very right wing extremist, um, where also a lot of gay Nazis found themselves. And their idea of homosexuality was very different from the idea that Magnus Hirschfeld had of homosexuality. Namely, they saw male homosexuality as the ultimate expression of masculinity. So their idea of homosexuality, especially of those gay Nazis like Anström, was very much connected to misogyny and also to anti-Semitism. And in the early years, um, Hitler always defended Trum against homophobic attacks. Um, he was saying that um, homosexuality had something to do with private life and therefore should not be of, the, uh, of concern to the public policies. That changed, however, then in 1934, when Hitler decided to have Anström killed, and it was later known as the Night of the Long Knives in the history books. The reason why Hitler decided Rühm to be killed was because Rühm became more and more popular within the party, and they had ideological differences on where to go next. And also the SS, another um, Nazi organization, was always a little bit in a rivalry with the SA, Ernst Rühm's SA, um, and was pushing very much against the SA. But the official reason, however, what the Nazis communicated to the outside world was that A, Röhm was planning an attack on Hitler, which was not true, and B, they then Specifically, used Röhm's homosexuality as one of the justifications for why they had to get rid of him. So, that was really the moment where I would not say that Hitler's ideas about homosexuality changed, but Röhm was just not useful to him anymore. Before that, Röhm was very useful to Hitler, so he was maybe, let's say, toning down his homophobia. Um, but then, when Röhm was, uh, started to become dangerous for him, that's when he really showed his true like, his face and his, uh, yeah, and then because and afterwards, of course, we know. That uh, the Nazis toughened paragraph 175, which was criminalizing male homosexuality and started the persecution of uh, gay and bisexual men as well in the uh, concentration camps.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And just one of many, many things that I learned by taking your tour is more about this very complex history that I just did not know about previously. Now, Following the toppling of the Nazi regime and the end of World War II, Berlin was in ruins. It went through a very long period of rebuilding. And, you know, as you mentioned, it kind of took a long time for things to revert back to an era of more sexual liberation. But toward the end of the 1960s and in the 1970s, there was this kind of sexual revolution that took place. So tell us a little bit about that post-World War II era and the shift back toward sex positivity. Like, when did things change and get out of that, you know, women should be housewives mentality and traditional values and so forth?
1: It's complicated because you have, of course, afterwards two states. You have West Germany um, controlled by the Western Allies and then you have the GDR controlled by the Soviet Union and sexuality also developed quite differently in both states. So as I said already, West Germany continued a very patriarchal idea until the late 1960s or beginning of 1970s at which point then there was a sexual revolution. Um, women also demanded to have more rights again and also the queer rights movement became stronger again in the 1970s in West Germany. Of course, you had to World riots in 69 that happened in the US that also influenced that movement in Europe but you also had the paragraph 175 that I mentioned already earlier which was criminalizing male homosexuality um, that uh, was loosened in uh, finally loosened in 69 and in 71 again and after that you had uh, also that movement then coming up and the third reason was the movie not the homosexual is perverted but the society in which she lives was also released in uh, 1970 or 1971 and right after that you had this uh, homosexual action west. Berlin that was formed uh, and that was basically the start of the second queer liberation movement in, in Germany then or in West Germany. In the GDR, it was a little bit different because the GDR had, um, from a very early point onwards on the GDR, already encouraged women to pursue their own goals, their own careers. So women in the GDR were much more often independent of men, of husbands. And that then probably also translated into sexual um, happiness. Like women in the GDR actually reported more sexual happiness than women in, in West Germany, even though the sexual revolution wasn't as, as strong in the GDR. And that's because probably because they were much more independent of um, their husband's incomes. However, the the queer rights movement wasn't as strong in the GDR or as visible in the GDR, even though paragraph 175 had been loosened and abolished already much, much earlier. And that's also because uh, the GDR was still a surveillance culture. Like even when the paragraph wasn't there anymore, it was still not accepted and it was still a surveillance culture. So it was still very, very difficult for queer people to to build up a, a movement again there. And sometimes like when I look at the 1920s and how far we were in our discussion around gender, around sexuality, I sometimes feel that we are only now getting to a point again to where we were in the 1920s already with them. At least when it comes to the way that we publicly talk about gender and sexuality. Like for example, all these different terms um, that we have today for non-binary, trans, et cetera, like um, we have today, we didn't have in the 1920s yet, but still there was a very strong discussion around these these issues. And people always think that this is so new, but it actually isn't new. It was all there in the 1920s already. It was destroyed by the Nazis. And then it took just such a long time again to get in our public debate again to the point where we are now. So it really took a long time to get to this point again after the Nazis.
0: Yeah, you know, that old saying, everything old is new again, you know, it's so true when it comes to anything related to sex and sexuality. Every generation likes to think that they've invented, you know, the wheel when it comes to things relating to sex. But, you know, uh, there's lots of things that happened in history that came before you, and that's why it's important to understand the history here. Now, as we've been talking, you know, I've been thinking about something, which is how if you look at almost any culture around the world, sexuality is something that seems to frequently swing on a pendulum. You know, you go through these eras of sexual liberalism, followed by sexual conservatism, and then the process starts all over again and the cycle repeats itself. So, for example, we had that here in the United States with the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. That was followed by a more conservative era sexually in the 1980s and 90s during the AIDS crisis. And then following that was another era of sexual liberation where you had this massive expansion of LGBTQ rights, including same-sex marriage. But it seems like today we're in a retreat toward more sexual conservatism again, if you look at the laws that are being passed and so forth. So I'm curious where things stand today in Berlin. You know, I saw that Berlin recently appointed its first conservative mayor in decades. And Berlin, you know, remains a very sexually open place compared to a lot of other parts of the world. But you know, you've talked about how we're kind of getting back to where things were in the Roaring Twenties, but have you noticed? Are there any shifts toward things starting to become more conservative again? Is that has happened?
1: I think it was Mark Twain who said that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, and sometimes I think this this saying is quite fits quite well in our times today, because I do see this conservative, sexually conservative backlash, definitely in Germany and. In Berlin, it's difficult to say. I mean, yes, there are definitely, for example, more. There's also more queerphobic violence happening. Um, also in Berlin, um, we do see more attacks happening here as well. You just mentioned the uh, the conservative mayor that we have uh, voted now in Berlin. Um. Uh, yes, we do have now a coalition of the Conservative and uh, Social Democratic Party. And this is not the first time that we have a Conservative mayor for quite a bit of time. Um, but he was also the first mayor since many years to come to participate at the Berlin Pride for the entire day, actually. Like he was really there for the entire day. I don't want to necessarily like make him look too good now, because at the same time, he, his party was also using a lot of um, anti-gender language um, in the weeks running up to the election. So we definitely also saw that. um but yeah, it's it's difficult to say about Berlin. It's a bit difficult for me to say how where we are there now with the counter movement. But we definitely see it in Germany overall. And um, we have a right-wing extremist party in Germany as well, and the AfD that um, is also now publishing posters, etc., against the uh, drag story hours um, where drag queens are reading children's books to to children. So that's definitely also happening here. And um, and they are also. Fightingly gaining a lot of uh, power or a lot of uh, support in the population.
0: Yeah, and you know, as you were talking about that, I was also thinking about how terms like sexual liberalism and sexual conservatism, you know, are, are very culturally relative, you know. For example, if you think about liberals and conservatives in the United States, and you compare them to Canada, well, Canada's conservatives are kind of like the liberals in the U.S., you know. So it's it's all relative in terms of you know what you're talking about. So my point in saying that is just for people listening that you know when you think about something like conservatism, what that means in one cultural context is different from what it means in another one. But I think this is something we're seeing around the world in a lot of places. Is that you're getting a rise of this kind of conservative movement around a lot of sexual values. I've seen it, I've talked about it in my study abroad courses in the Netherlands. It's definitely happening here in the United States. And so it's just something that I think is important to think about as we're talking about, you know, sexuality swinging on this pendulum, going back and forth between these periods of liberation and then conservatism, and then the cycle just keeps repeating itself.
1: Yes, you can definitely see that here as well at the moment, Yeah.
0: So let me ask you just a couple of quick rapid-fire questions so we can get a sense of the sexual landscape in Germany today. So first, is sex education mandatory in Germany?
1: Oh, God, you ask (laughs) me. Since I (laughs) I didn't go to school in Germany, I went to school in Luxembourg. um, I'm a bit unsure now, but I'm pretty sure it is in Germany as well. It is in Luxembourg, um, and I think it's also in Germany, yes. However, I'm not sure how well it is done in Germany since I never went to school here. And also it depends (laughs) from state to state because actually every German state when it comes to school policies has their own policy and and politics and and regulations. So it's also difficult to say for the entire country of Germany because it's different in, in every state. But generally, yes, they do.
0: It's funny, a lot of people from the U.S. will look at a European country like Germany and just think of it as a monolith, but no, it's actually comprised of states and they're, they're governed, they operate quite differently. Um, but from what I've read, it does seem that sex education is mandatory, although there is variation from state to state in Germany in terms of what's required Overall, at the aggregate level, what the data suggests is that the Germans are doing a better job than we are here in the U.S., and they tend to have lower rates of teen pregnancies, teen STIs, and all that other stuff, which again makes the case for why we need more comprehensive sex education. Definitely, though. Yeah. So next question. Is sex work legal in Germany?
1: Yes, sex work is legal. Um, however, it's uh, heavily regulated, um, and uh, there are also a few things in the laws that make it very, very difficult for sex workers to legally do their job with, say, and then at the same time also safely.
0: Yeah, and I remember one of the things you pointed out on our tour was there was an actual sex box where sex workers can take their clients and go. It's just sitting out in public, so that you know transactions happen in public, they've got a private place where they can go to do their business.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was a box that was built by a Christian church in the neighborhood um, because this area where the sex workers are working was pretty empty when I moved there. And now they had a lot of buildings that they built there. And the empty space was usually the space where the sex workers would go to. So now they don't have that anymore. So there's actually a a church uh, that built those, uh, those boxes so that they have a place where they can go to with their customers.
0: Absolutely fascinating. It would not happen in the U.S. that you'd see a church (laughs) (laughs) building a sex box for sex workers to conduct their business.
1: It's a very progressive church. They also host a a fetish concert twice a year where where gay (laughs) men in fetish gear are playing classical music in a church and you can actually go and watch them or listen to it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have got to attend that at some point. Um, now, my next question for you is: Public nudity legal in Germany?
1: It is not a crime, however, it can be a public offense, but only if somebody complains. Like as nobody, as long as nobody actually complains to the police, it's not considered a crime. And Berlin also has nudist areas. Like uh, Berlin has a lot of lakes, in and one of Berlin and almost all of them have a the nudist area. And you have the Central Park in Berlin, the Tiergarten Park, also has has a nudist area where it's quite common to just walk by and then you see people lying naked on the lane uh, sunbathing yeah
0: yep and i saw that not this most recent time i was in berlin but on a previous trip we did a bike tour through the city and we biked through uh tiergarten and you know there was this spot where it was just a whole bunch of naked people Mm -hmm. outside sunning themselves and i'm like (laughs) that's just not something you see every day at home so Well, thank you so much, Jeff. This has all been super fascinating to learn about the history of sex in Berlin. And I'm really looking forward to our next conversation where we're going to dive into what the sex club scene in Berlin is really like. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jeff. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and the fantastic tours that you offer?
1: Sure. So all my tours uh, can be found at berlinguide.de. That's my website, berlinguide.de for Germany, Deutschland. And uh, yeah, and there you can basically find all my tours about Berlin's history of sex, uh, the clubs in Berlin, and Berlin's queer and trans history.
0: Well, thank you again for your time. I can vouch for your tours, they are fantastic, and I will be sure to include a link for them in the show notes. Thank you also to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. And be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies. And be sure to check out Jeff's tours if you ever happen to find yourself in Berlin. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.